Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Before I introduce my guest, I have some really exciting news to share. I am now officially part of the Taste of Reality podcast network, which will be hosting my podcast on their site starting now. If you go to realityofreality.com, it will take you to my webpage on Taste of Reality. Once you get on the page, you can listen to all my podcasts on your computer and look at the links and the show notes. There's a lot of other fun stuff on Taste of Reality website you can explore, including the store where, drumroll please, you can buy Reality of Reality swag. Yes, that's real. I've got tote bags, mugs, notebooks, stickers, even a water bottle. It's really crazy, but I'm so excited about all of it. In short order, this will also include advertisers coming on board so we can make the brand even bigger. And as always, thank you guys so much for your support. If you haven't gone to the iTunes store and rated my podcast, please go to Reality of Reality on iTunes. Give me a five-star rating if you can and write a short review too. That really helps. And I'm very, very grateful to every person who does that. Today on the podcast, Elliot Goldberg, my friend and also head of Unscripted for AMC and Sundance. I first interviewed Elliot back in March of 2018. You can go back and listen to that podcast to find out about his career and how he brought the Kardashians to our TV screens way back when. Today, it's more of a somber conversation about the new documentary series, The Preppy Murder, which starts airing simultaneously on Sundance and AMC on November 13th at 9 o'clock p.m. I was given advanced screeners of all the episodes, and I tore through all five hours in less than a day, I think. It's extremely well done, very compelling. It all centers around a terrible case that gripped New York City and really the whole country back in the 80s. It involves the gruesome murder in Central Park of Jennifer Levin and the so-called preppy murderer Robert Chambers. Elliot had a special connection to this case, which helped fuel his commitment to getting the story right, which the filmmakers absolutely did. The series is a fascinating intersection of true crime and the Me Too movement more than 30 years after the fact. And just a heads up, you can probably tell from my voice on this intro and in the podcast, I've been a little under the weather. So apologies if I'm a little hard to listen to this week. Okay, so I'm here with Elliot again, round two. (laughs) Welcome back, I guess. Yeah, welcome back. This time we're at my house, very like a year and a half later. Yeah, the different house. Different house. (laughs) Yes, different location. but Undisclosed. Yes. Undisclosed. I'm very happy to have you here. The circumstances, I mean, it's it's a heavy case that we're going to be getting into. Um... And I'm really glad that I have this opportunity because as I think I may, we may have communicated via text, which we do often that, um, this case I was, uh, around as you were too, around Jennifer's age. And I remember, I mean, this case, and I was living in New York, I was growing up in New York, I was in high school. So this case was everywhere. So this series really brought me back to that time. And I thought, you know, just as an overall note about the series, I think you guys did an incredible job of like really bringing us into, you know, the mid eighties in that way in a really powerful way. And people don't remember that this before OJ, this was the trial of the century. Yeah, it it is uh, an incredible story that obviously the interest in it hasn't waned. um, Or if it has, it's, you feel like it's um, right time to, to re-examine this story and for all kinds of reasons. Uh, well, what made you want to revisit it? This situation was quite unusual, um, just to be really honest. Uh, something I'm sure people don't know is I went to camp with Jennifer Levin 
Um, she was a year younger than me. I was 16. She was 15. And we ended up having a little camp romance that, uh, you know, short lived. It was nothing serious, but we became friends. I would go down and hang out at her, her dad's, um, apartment down on Mercer street and a group of us camp friends. Um, what camp was it? Camp Adirondack in Lake George, because I grew up back east. She was uh, had just moved into the city from Long Island, and um, there were kids from New York City a lot. So I would be I'd become friends with New York City kids, which was really cool. Right. And going down to her apartment was it was like Soho at that time was really kind of seedy and cool and warehousey, and so for a Connecticut kid going down there, we we'd go to all the cool music shops, and I just remember. Um, and, and so Jennifer and I were, you know, we're friends, uh, outside of camp a bit, but in those days there was no Facebook, there was (laughs) no Instagram, no texting, no texting, no cell phones. So you kind of lost track during the winter with your friends until you went back to camp. Um, so the, the quick story before we get into the show is I hadn't seen Jennifer or talked to her for a few years. I had gone off to college Um, and our lives just kind of, I didn't go to camp anymore and she stopped going to camp. And my, uh, two weeks before the murder, I was in New York city visiting a friend, uh, who was kind of, I would call him a preppy from New York city and hung out in those circles. And we ended up going to this bar one night, which was Dorian's. Oh my God. I had never been to Dorian's. I, this whole world was very kind of for me, it was, you know, not anything that I was used to because in the Upper East Side, New York City was, you know, its own thing in the in the 80s. And uh, we went to this bar, Dorian's, was hanging out at the bar, and I looked across and I noticed this girl, this attractive girl who looked familiar, you know, like, who is that? And I kind of did a double take and I realized that was my friend Jen Levin. And... Um, I went over and saw her. We had a great, like, you know, we hadn't seen each other in probably three years, uh, two or three years. And it was just one of those weird, random things. We ended up spending the next day hanging out together. Uh, I went back to college. I was at Wisconsin. And two weeks later, uh, I think it was about two weeks, my friend from New York, who, who I was with, called me and he said, are you looking, are you watching the news? And I said, no, I'm in, I'm in college. You know, we didn't have texts and we right. didn't have uh, smartphones and everything. And... Um, he said, Jennifer Levin was murdered last night in Central Park. And I, I nearly fell off, you know, my chair. I uh, I was like, what? And he said, yeah, it's all over the news. It's like a huge story. And it looks like it was by someone she knew. And so I was away from the story. I was across country. And so I, I wasn't like probably you were in New York in the tabloids. So I kind of kept tabs on it the best I could because we didn't have the New York Post and the and the and the Times in right. Wisconsin. Um, wow. And just for people who um don't know yet, hopefully they will when they watch the series, Dorian's ended up being the last place everyone saw her before she was murdered. The she same was mur- exact bar. Yeah, the, that's the weird part for me. Just this yeah. again, there's these personal connections. Incredible. We were at the bar she was killed at two weeks later. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, so oh my I on one hand I was really relieved or happy or whatever you want to call it that I got to see her before she died. But it was another just thinking about like you right what's the chance of running into this woman who you you know, friend of yours who was killed two weeks later. Um 
And so there's a part of me and I was like, was it meant to be that I saw her, all those things. So anyway, that, that was kind of the last time I saw her. And frankly, you know, time moves on, you know, I live in California. Um, I'm not, I'm not that involved in the camp anymore, but I have some friends who, uh, you know, who I've stayed in touch with. And a couple of years ago, you know, we get lots of crime pitches. We were just kind of diving into true crime and, Bobby Friedman from Bungalow and his team, Liz Marsh, came in with a pitch and it was with Linda Fairstein, who was the, you know, this famous DA, New York uh, prosecutor who had uh, started the the sex crimes unit in New York. Uh, but there was never a sex crimes unit. It's what SVU was, um, was based upon. And I was really impressed with her and her caseload. That's what the show was supposed to be about, Linda's caseload. But the, one of the show, stories of the that they talked about was the the preppy murder, Jennifer Levin murder, and it immediately struck me. It all came kind of flowing back, and I just went, "We should do that." You know, we should do not uh, a, a, a on continuing search. We really should look at that 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 story, and because we were doing these kind of deep dives into crime, we just done this story of the cold blood murders. Uh, Jonestown was just kind of bubbling up. And I think we just kind of Marco, uh, Brezitz, who's my, um, works with my, in my department, he's our v, senior VP now. He, um, he was really also very, uh, focused on, on the idea of telling this story again. And so I guess part of it, Elisa, is it was personal. I thought that this story was never told right. It was always a tabloid, um, you know, mud slinging, you know, Jennifer was dragged through the mud. She was, it, it was terrible what they did to her, her, her reputation. And the girl I know is a nice 18 year old, fun, you know, happy young woman. And um, so there was some personal reasons for me to do this, I would say. But at the end of the day, I, I just, you know, when we look at stories and what we should revisit this seemed given where we were in the me too moment on top of everything else. Um, and 30 years passed from, you know, crime in New York city, it all just kind of felt right. Yeah. And I want to deep dive into all of those. You raised so many good Sorry points. Sorry for, for rambling. No, about it's it. great. But I just want to, before we kind of leave the personal connection, yeah. I, I want to ask, I mean, one of the things that I love about this series and, and as I told you, I just was overall just think it's an excellent, excellent thank documentary. You. I mean, it's really I do well want to give done. credit to, thank you. I don't mean to interrupt you, yeah, but uh, Annie Sunberg and Ricky Stern, the directors, uh, as well as Bungalow, Bobby Friedman and Liz Marsh, uh, the, the Annie and Ricky really were the perfect directors to do this. Then when we were looking for the right, right team or the right person, um, they understood the story. One of them actually was there at the time and, and knew a lot of the players. And so I want to give them, you know, kudos and props because they they really did do a stellar job. And thank you for having two female directors because it showed. It just, it was not just, you know, well-directed and well-done, but I think one of the things that it did so well and they did so well was bringing Jennifer to life. And one of the things that we'll talk about in terms of this case is, is how sort of maligned and 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 drug you know dragged through the mud she was as you said, but also um, you know so few of these kinds of docs focus on the victim and in a in a meaningful way. And you guys did such an incredible job, really bringing Jennifer to life. And that was actually the question I wanted to go back to with you: is how do you remember her, and what what are your own you know 
what is the vision that you see of her when you think about her? Well, this is a long time ago. Yeah. I was 16 years old. Uh, was she like your first girlfriend? Or? She was one of my first, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't call her girlfriend. It was a camp, you know, you'd hook up with someone for a week. It was right. a summer fling. But we became close. And I mean, I remember she's really obviously attractive, cute. Uh, I was a year older and she was 15, I think, when we dated at camp. Um, and she was just a really full of life. I, I don't know the way to say it. she had a lot of energy. She was really fun. I remember going to the city with her and she was kind of, and you can see it in the series, she was kind of a downtown from Long Island, but she moved downtown. And so she had this just kind of free spirit. And I remember thinking, you know, New York girls were a little bit less, uh, you know, inhibited yeah. and a little bit more. And, and I mean that like just, just, hopping on subways and totally going to, you know, yes. clubs and all these things <laughs> that, that out in Connecticut, we never really did any well, of that same. stuff. I mean, I was in the suburbs and yeah, I was and a suburb the, kid. Right. And, and I had a few friends that would go into the city and sneak into Nell's and studio 54 yep. and Dorian's and all these places and use fake ID. And I was too scared, you know, yeah. but I remember thinking like, wow, like, and I knew a couple of people that I grew up with that moved to the city and went to high school in the city. And it was just, you know, there was Coke and drug, yeah. you know, it was just like a whole other world. Well, I, again, and I don't, that part, I didn't see Jennifer. We were young. I mean, yeah, this right. was later, obviously right, right, right. when, she, she, when was she was murdered. But when I'm, when I was with her, she was 15 and 16. Yeah. And she just, to me, was a cool chick. I yeah. mean, I just remember thinking, she looks cool. She's, uh, she's definitely like knows her way around New York city. And I didn't experience anything like that growing up. And so that was my memory of her. Then I don't have a lot of memory when that last day we stayed together, honestly. Um, it's a long time ago, it's 30 years, but I, uh, I just remember it was so senseless. I just remember feeling like this girl should be alive. This girl has a, a this, you know, a future ahead of her that she should have been able to live and love and experience and have children. And so it's always really been in the back of my mind, like a sadness about losing any friend at a young age, but then the way to have someone in one of the biggest stories. And I would say, as you said before, really was not treated well in death. That's an understatement. And I think bringing it full circle one of the reasons I really want to do this series is because I, to your point, we, and we, and we talked about a lot, Jennifer needs to be a character. She needs to be front and center as much as Robert is because everyone wants to talk about the killer and the good looking preppy, but Jennifer is a, is an important and a part of the story. She's as are more important and let's humanize her. Let's bring her to life and let's tell her story. And so we get the real a fair view of what happened and getting Jennifer's mom and sister to me and, and best friend uh, Jessica was so key to, to um, showing her full side of her life. Yeah. And, and Jessica even says it in the doc. I mean, she says, I'm doing this to set the record straight on who Jen was, you know? And I'll tell you what I'm did this. So we could set the record straight as well. Obviously at the end of the day was to make a, a great series, compelling true crime doc series, but there was no reason to do it if it wasn't going to give her justice, her family a voice and to say, my daughter is well represented. I would have not been able to live with myself if it hadn't been that. Good. So, I mean, look, 
people will watch it as they should. I don't want to go too deep into every detail. Believe me, I love these kinds of sort of crime cases, so I could. But let's just set the stage. And then I kind of really more more want to talk about the themes of the series, less so about, you know, sort of the forensic, so to speak. But Mm -hmm. at face value, this should have been an open and shut case, right? So they basically, she was at Dorian's with friends and, and I'm condensing the story, but she and Robert had had a history. They Robert Chambers, who, you know, so-called preppy murder that the case that the show is based on. And the case was widely referred to in the media. They had had, you know, dating. I don't know what you call it. Like you said, it was sleeping more so, together. It kind of like friends with benefits. Yeah. I, would say. I don't and, think they were, she, she was, uh, from what I know was taken with him as a lot of women were. He's yes. a really good looking guy. When you watch the series, you'll see he's, his, uh, interrogation tape is incredible. And we use a lot of it cause he's so compelling. I have to say like, as much as I wanted to hate him, you're like, this guy is great. You understand the guy. charm. Yeah. You get he's it. charming. He has something star quality. And that's one of the reasons this case is case is what it is. Exactly. I mean, to be honest. So what happened was Jennifer was at the bar um, wanting to see Robert. Uh, Robert was dating this woman who was actually his girlfriend, Alex Cap, who went on to become an actress, like a like a pretty. Yeah, I looked her up because okay. I said, why do I? She looked familiar. She went on to do sitcoms and all kinds of stuff. OK, so yeah. at the time he was dating her, he stood up Alex that night, showed up three hours late. Alex was pissed, threw a bunch of condoms in his face and kind of humiliated him. Cut to, he ended up, Jennifer and he, walking to Central Park. What's hard about this case, you said it was a slam dunk open and shut. There's no question he did it. There's no question that he admitted he did it. But there's a lot of gray in why he did it and what was the motive and what happened. Nobody really, to this day, fully knows. What we do know and what I have always gone back to, and I think most people who looked at this objectively... The crime photos are so brutal, as you'll see in the show, and we had to show that because otherwise you wouldn't really understand the impact that of what this guy did. He didn't. He claimed it was an accident. He claimed he kind of threw she her. She wanted rough sex. It doesn't matter what happened. He brutally beat her, her, and strangled her to the point where you, when you see these crime photos, you'll see how just horrific it was. There's why he did it. We don't know. He was a drug addict. We don't know if he was humiliated that night. We don't know if he couldn't get it up. There's all kinds of theories that, you know, Linda, even the prosecutor has, has tried. But what she said is you don't have to have a motive. People want the motive, but the, but the facts are he killed her in cold blood. He left her there and sat across the street and watched her as the police came and didn't tell anybody and then lied and lied and lied about it. And the other part, which we learned, which wasn't in the trial, he was a major drug addict. I mean, major Coke addict. He was a major thief. He robbed everywhere. Even Jennifer. He was her diamond yes. earrings well, were missing. They, there was a theory. They Ugh, think that he, that he robbed me. her that, that her of her earrings and money that night. But the, the, the his lawyer, the whole kind of key of this thing is his lawyer, Jack Lippman, was brilliant and he manipulated the press and made her out to be the bad guy, made Robert to be out a saint, which he was far from a saint. And so that's why you got this hung jury. But right. if the people had gotten the real story as we show on the dock. I think the outcome would have been different. Right. Well, first of all, they weren't allowed to introduce so many of the robberies. I mean, he had done like 43 robberies or something insane. So what happened was like you first... 
What was interesting about the way the media and law enforcement kind of intertwined with this case, especially at the beginning, was once they sort of homed in on him and then he admitted it, but again said it happened differently, you know, he was the number one suspect. He basically admitted that it happened. So, but without saying that he did it, right? So the you see his very handsome face. As you said, he went to private school. He was in the scene in the Upper East Side, kind of, you know, that whole scene. So that whole scene had a lot of money. You know, there were there were parties at the, you know, without the parents in town, jetting off to Cannes, like the whole thing that I kind of, you know, watch from the distance from the suburbs. But when they started to dive in, when Linda and the detective started to dive into who this guy was, it was a totally different story. Well, that's okay. So you hit on it. It's called the preppy murder. <laughs> yeah, Not a preppy. Well, he was a pre- wannabe prep. Exactly. His mom Poser. wanted. His mom worked like was a, I think like a nurse. She was or, a nurse. Yeah. Right. And worked in rich families. Wanted him to be all that, but they weren't. Right. And so he ended up uh, hanging in those circles. He did go to prep schools, but he always failed out of the prep schools. He always got in trouble. So he was. He. They also played him as an altar boy. There's a whole side of the story, which I, whether we get into or not, but the Catholic Church. Fascinating. That's fascinating. That that you find out at the end that there was the Catholic Church was involved with Robert, and Robert was made to be kind of an altar boy. He was far from an altar boy. They posted his bail. Yeah. So that's a whole other crazy yeah. twist, which you have to watch the doc to, to see um, about how the Catholic Church is involved in this case. But yeah, that that's the mis- misconception is he wasn't a rich kid privileged. He was a wannabe rich kid. And I think probably where some of him, you know, you could point to where he went off the rails is because he couldn't have that life. And he, you know, I think at the end of the day, though, Eliza, he was a drug addict. Right. And that's where. But do you think he was a sociopath? I think he was. If you watch the anyone who sits there and murders someone and then sits across the, the road and watches them kind of placidly and walks home. And if you when you watch the interrogation, interrogation. tape, there's no question he's a sociopath. He is so calm. He is so collected. He's spinning everything. He is blaming her right off the bat. But he is so almost credible in his in his lying. Right. Well, he yeah. says like, he says that first of all, he wasn't with her, you know, the cat scratched him. There are right. all these lies and they just keep like, he keeps changing his story. Well, that's so, the thing. So ultimately if he admits that she died, no matter how she died, you, if you were involved with her, you knew her, wouldn't you be crying? Wouldn't you be upset? You know, like exactly. it's just, he's you stone had, you, cold. He's you stone slept cold. with this woman. Right. You yeah. were friends with her yeah. and you had, he called her the, the body, you know, he couldn't even call yeah. her like. I feel horrible how she, she, there was no, throughout the whole trial to the very end, yeah. there was no emotion. There was no compassion. His final speech to the Levin family is so void of like any feeling and any true emotion that you just go this. And, and, and what's proven over the course of the next 30 years is that he continued to get in trouble. He continued to be a sociopath and a drug addict. And, um, you know, again, in a way justice has kind of, been served because he's been, uh, you know, made Exposed, terrible decisions. Right. Yeah. And also uh, you've second chance, like OJ, you know, you get yes. the second chance, and you get out it every time. and then you screw up again. Yep. Exactly. It's like Trump, you know, you get caught the first time <laughs> you get away with it and then you're going to go and try to collude again with Ukraine, you know, like, Hey, maybe you should have stopped the first time you got away. No, with but it. it's, it's, it's actually a fair point because you know, again, the psychopathy is like these delusions of grandeur this, you know, it, it's, it's the, um, deep 
you know, just sickness of people that really have are devoid of emotions and don't think there are consequences have been enabled by people. I mean, he, he got away with things time and time again, you know, the mother would, would enable him and and say, Oh, sorry, he stole your fur coat here. Here's, you know, here, yeah, can have a The amazing thing is that he got more time for his drug arrest when he got out. Amazing. This, you know, after he got out for the Jen's murder and now he's still in prison. He like blew a perfect chance because he's a drug addict. Yeah. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what this is sadly about. So backing up to the interrogation video, because that was fascinating and I had never seen that. Had that ever been public before? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think it had been. I don't think they used it in the trial. They weren't allowed to use it in the trial, as I recall. You know, and I'm not I'm not sure. I, yeah, let me, I wonder. Let me scratch that. Because I feel like there was so much there, like yeah. you said. And- I don't... People may have seen parts of the interrogation video, but even... Me who lived through this story, I don't remember seeing Same. more than bits of it. So we really do use it throughout the series, and I do think it is so revealing about who he is, what lies he tells, and a lot of that wasn't able to be used in the trial. I think you know some of the things that came out in that interrogation tape. Yeah, and you mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, sort of the resonance of this case now with Me Too. And it really kind of blew my mind how badly the media enabled Jack Lippman's agenda in terms of, you know, there's literally a headline in the, in the Daily News, Jen Court's death. The, literally the dead woman who was savagely beaten and murdered court's death. And, uh, you know, it's just he, the whole what they that was the origins, they said, of like the blame the victim defense. And it's just it, and the media, you know, putting him on the cover of New York magazine in a suit looking handsome after he's accused of murder. I mean, it was just shocking, really, how bad it really was. Well, it, people forget it's very different time. This was kind of pre even like current affair. I think current affair was just kind of starting at that time. Yeah. There weren't the tabloid TVs. There wasn't the 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 internet there was just the new york the new york post the new york daily news and newsday that were you know t- really uh fighting for this story and i think that you know i guess people when you work in the media you want the most juicy story you want the thing that's going to sell ratings and papers and also the time was just different you know victims were not treated well um it was easy to uh, I mean, you, you have to blame both his attorney who had a very specific strategy to try to make Robert look, I mean, look, it's his job, I guess, try to make Robert look great and make the victim. Cause that's all you can do is in this case is try to make it look like she was at somehow to blame or at fault or put herself in that situation or tried to go after him, whatever, you know, story they were trying to spin. But I think that, you know, I, I, we talked about some of the reasons that I thought we should do this story, but it was also around the time that Trump had won and, and there was a lot of kind of like Cosby and, and, and the Me Too. And we just felt like, sadly, this story is more relevant than ever. You have a situation, we have a young girl, completely innocent, you know, who is they who is the victim, who not sexual assault alone was murdered by this person, this guy. And why? We wanted to explore why was it she treated so badly? Why did he sort of get away with that and put on a pedestal and people, as they say, were on team Robert Chambers. And so 
I think it, we do a, a pretty good job of exploring, you know, within today's lens of what, um, why this would happen. I, I will say the only, you know, thing that was always, I think that helped him, he didn't have a violent history, right? There was no history of him hurting anyone, of, of violence, of being an angry person. And so I think that was what was always a little tricky for people like, well, why would he do this? Or, you know, why would he, um, you know, why would he kill her? But when you're a sociopath and you're a drug addict and you're drinking or doing drugs or whatever it is you're doing, you know, and you're out there in the middle of the night and something sets you off, you know, I, I guess he may. Or an escalating or escalating uh, factors set you up. You know yeah. what I mean? It could have been building. Yeah. Um. So, I, you know, I obviously agree with everything you're saying. And I think that one of the, I think Jessica, her best friend says, you know, she was essentially, Jennifer was essentially slut shamed in death and, you know, she was punished for having a sexual life. And, you know, that's something that really resonated because even now with, you know, when victims come out and speak and, you know, it's like, well, she continued to work for him after it happened, you know, with this now with Matt Lauer coming to the surface again. And uh, you hear the same thing over and over where the blame is now on the woman. And even when Matt Lauer came out with his statement, this is just so current because just a few weeks ago, yeah. you know, he said like, basically, you know, it was like, poor me, all these women are just upset because their boyfriends got mad or whatever. And it's once again, putting the blame back on the victim, not taking any responsibility. And so mm-hmm. it's amazing to me that even this dead woman was still being blamed and punished for her own death. Some things don't change, you know, <laughs> right. uh, this situation with this Congresswoman, Katie Hill, and, oh, God. You know, like, look, whether what she did was a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it's not, you know, that's for voters to judge, but I campaigned for her, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I look, was, the, I was bummed. The, if all I can say is there are a lot of men who are still have their jobs and still in power. My point is, is that you know, yes, we've made a lot of progress, obviously, especially in the last few years. Women are coming forward. Women are being taken seriously. Men are um, being called out, certainly, and losing their jobs. You know, Cosby being put in jail. But at this time, you know, in this moment, Jennifer uh, was slut-shamed, as you said, blamed for being a sexual teenager. How many young women out there are, you know, sexually active in this, in certainly now, but back then it was, I guess, a little bit more, uh, not, not accepted. And, you know, sadly it worked in Robert's favor uh, and it was a way to, to kind of, you know, help his case. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of, honestly, even, you know, looking at it in retrospect is kind of amazing. And I think even the judge said years later to a juror, like, how'd you not convict this guy? Because it, like you said, it ended in a hung jury. He ended up taking a plea to manslaughter. And, um, you know, it was very powerful with Jen's mother saying that you know, they could have fought that and they, and they, but she was just exhausted. I mean, she was just, just went through the ringer, obviously not just grieving her daughter and her sister as well. And obviously her father. Um, but, uh, you know, she just, she didn't have it in her. Like it was too painful to even do this anymore. Well, and they're not sure they would have gotten better than they well, got. Well, then there's that, right? Because right. it's, uh, yeah, it was, a, again, because it wasn't a motive, I think wasn't clear. Uh, and there was a lot of evidence that was left out. Right. And the image of Robert was, he's a good looking Right, they couldn't guy. introduce the 43 robberies, which yeah. would have been very compelling. I think if it's they had been criminal. able to tell the other side, there would have probably been a different outcome. I think yeah. the judge also, as we saw in the show, yeah. 
wasn't uh, you know didn't handle the this trial um, with fairness. I think he ruled a, f- a number of times in 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 favor of the prosecutor in ways that would have really changed the case. Did you try to get is Jen's dad alive? No, he's not. Oh, he he passed. Okay. He passed away. So, yeah. How long ago did he? I'm not sure. Okay. So I, I, you know, we, we look anyone that we could right. You that was that to connected to Jennifer or Robert, frankly, you know, yeah. that's why we got Alex cap. And, right. Um, she was really good. She, yeah. And I thought her perspective was fascinating because just to set up Alex cap was dating Robert at the time. That night was the one who threw the condoms at him, who uh, he also visited when he got out of prison, which is fascinating when they talk, she talks about how he comes to uh, her house and she realizes at that moment that she's been dating a guy who is a sociopath and a murderer. And that's the last time she saw him. I got chills again. I that know. was an incredible moment. But I thought that her, you know, her perspective of what it was like to, you know, just have your boyfriend, you know, murder someone else while you're dating him and what you, what she went through as a young woman, whether to stand by him or not. Um, it was, was a, you know, it's, it's a, it's an endlessly compelling, fascinating case for all kinds of reasons. And I think that's why, A, the interest in, in the story never kind of dies down and why I think it's the perfect story and a perfect time to, to tell it. Because I feel like as much as there was as much press as there was, I just don't think it was ever really told. No, it wasn't. In, in a way that got the full story. And I think also with distance in a lot of these stories, you know, like you thought how much any, no more OJ or Michael Jackson, (laughs) but when you have a new look at a story many years later with new perspective and, um, and there's a whole generation who don't have never heard of the preppy murder. Yeah. And, and I just, you know, just taking even a, in a a larger um, view of kind of where we are in entertainment, I think that. And I personally love this because the stuff that I love working on it, you know, that sort of deep dive peeling the onion, you know, that's very in vogue now. And, and, um, you know, I, I admit at the beginning, I was like, how are they going to do five parts on this? Or was it, uh, it was four and we, and it it was so much we expanded. Yeah. And I was like, I could have watched 10 more. I mean, I was, I I was just on the edge of my seat. I did want to mention, um, something that I will always remember because it was huge news when it happened. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember exactly chronologically, when it happened, but it was the current affair video that was released of, it was like home video of Robert Chambers basically popping off a head of a Barbie doll, you know, making a joke about killing Jennifer. And it was just the, seeing it again, again, was so chilling again. Well, the, the timing of it was, it came out late in this story and I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure if it was, it was after, after the, the trial. trial. Was it was over. definitely it was after, after the, the trial. trial. Yeah. So they didn't see it. If the jury had seen this video, I have no doubt this might have gone a different way. I agree. You you can't believe that this guy again is such a sociopath and so brazen that when he is, you know, gotten a pretty light sentence, is joking with a bunch of girls about killing Jennifer with a doll. It's a shocking, disgusting, and honestly a fitting ending to this story. Because it again showed who Robert Chambers really was. A guy who sat there and, you know, brutally murdered a girl, sat across the the park and watched her body being, you know, by the detectives, didn't say anything, lied and lied and lied, 
you know, uh, throughout the entire interrogation. And then, uh, and then at the end of it, when he was, you know, lucky enough to get a hung jury is joking about murdering her. You can't write this. It is, it is truly the most, it makes me, you know, angry and sad and, and just disgusted. Uh, and again, though justice may not fully been served, I think everybody now who knows the story and who will watch this series will see who the real Robert Chambers is and who the, who the villain is. And he, he is everything that, you know, we thought he was. So a couple of things I want to end on. Um, as you said, Chambers ended up extending his sentence because he got out and then he got into you know drug trouble again. And he's going to get out. Well, who knows with him, but his expected release date is 2024. That's kind of soon. I mean, that's, you know, whatever, four and a half years. years. Away, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the thought of that guy being on the streets again terrifies me. Well, I don't know how he, what he's doing at this point in his life. All I know is you have one person who was life was lost at 19 years old, 18 or 19. I can't remember. Yeah. 18, 18. And he was 19 and another person's life who was, has been ruined for the last 30 plus years. And who's now in his fifties and has lived in prison and has been in drug rehab. And it's just a sad, sad story for everyone. I, and I, and I, I wish he spent the rest of his life in jail. Um, Me too. But I, but thank God he got, you know, that he screwed up and got put back in jail for more time. So in the end of the day, he's done over 30 years behind bars. Uh, I guess that, you know, is, is, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it obviously would never make up for, for what he did, but, um, to, I guess to some extent, some justice has been served. Yeah. I don't remember who said this, but I put this in my notes. I, this was sort of like one of the wrap up bites from probably one of the investigators. Uh, we expect strangers, but it's a monster in our midst who we wanted to hang out with because he's handsome and cool. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but I thought that was a really good point in this whole story as we sort of go back to like what the themes are, which is that like, it's like people expect the boogeyman, you know, and then it's Ted Bundy or Robert Chambers. And I think that's the part, like you said, that was always so hard for the jury to wrap their heads around. And Lippman was so effective in manipulating was that like, how could this guy do this? You know, most murderers don't look like, right? like that. Like you said, with Ted Bundy yeah, uh, looks, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving all those you know, um, <laughs> trite yeah, kind cliches. of cliches, but it's true. Uh, just because he was a good looking, you know, charismatic, um, strapping guy doesn't mean he didn't have major demons. And at the end of the day, that's what this story is about. It's about a guy who was a, a troubled, you know, uh, drug addict, sociopath, and sadly, my friend and you know a, a wonderful young woman met her end by going to the park with him you know and and then you know what she had to go through in her death was just it's unfathomable and just unconscionable and if we can do our little part to try to give her some justice her family some some vindication and to have her daughters legacy be retold, then that's all that I hope 
that comes from this. And I, you know, I obviously want people to see it because I think it's an excellent documentary series. Uh, I think it's, you know, incredibly well crafted and story well told. And I think people will be fascinated all these years later. So I, 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 um, you know, I couldn't be more proud of it. I think that's a perfect way to end. I think you, 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 you took the words right out of my mouth. So I will, I'm also going to repeat this in the intro, but again, just tell us when it starts time and how many episodes it's going to air over. Yeah. I just was going to add too. this is the first time yeah. one of our Sundance true crime series is being simulcast on AMC. That's great. Because um, our president, Sarah Barnett was in our head of marketing really felt that this, this story was worth being seen as as widely as possible. So it is a special uh, situation where we're going to air on AMC and Sundance simulcast November 13th through 15th. It's a three night event, uh, five hours. So two hours of the first two nights, one hour of the last night. Uh, I, I think it's nine to 11. I think I said that. Yeah. And uh, you can watch it on either Sundance or AMC, but I, I, I highly um, I recommend it and hope everybody checks it out. Thank you so much for deep diving. And again, my personal condolences to you for losing your friend, but also kudos to you for helming and, and making sure that this saw the light of day because it's really important. Well, first of all, thank you so much for you. You were so complimentary when you saw it. And I really appreciate that, you know, hearing the feedback finally from people who have, I, you know, are seeing it kind of the first time is yeah. going to be um really gratifying, I hope. And, uh, and thanks for having me on because it's, it's a story that I think needs to be told. And I appreciate you helping them tell it. Thank you. Thank you.